0: Welcome to the Barry Sax Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sax Show. I'm Barry Cockcroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians, with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysacks.com. Just before we get started today, I would like to apologise in advance for the audio quality, which unfortunately does not meet my usual production standards. My kangaroo-powered internet connection was a little unreliable, but please stick with this fascinating interview and you can always follow along with the full text transcript at barrysax.com. Richard Ingham has had an extensive career as a performer, composer and educator. He has given solo saxophone recitals and chamber concerts throughout the UK, North America, Asia and Europe. Numerous composers have written works for him and he is played by invitation at every World Saxophone Congress since 1985. In 2012 he was the Artistic Director of the acclaimed 16th World Saxophone Congress in St Andrews, Scotland. He is a Yamaha artist, conducted the National Saxophone Choir of Great Britain for several years and has composed many original works. He studied at the University of York, specialising in clarinet and contemporary music, and later he studied at Leeds Metropolitan University and the University of Leeds, both in aspects of music technology. A brief but inspirational period was spent at Bloomington University, Indiana, studying saxophone with Eugene Russo. Richard has been teaching for 40 years, always alongside his performing and composing career. He teaches saxophone, both classical and jazz, chamber music performance, jazz performance, and history of 20th century music. His jazz courses at the University of St Andrews have been running for 24 years. He was editor and contributing author of the Cambridge Companion to the Saxophone, widely regarded as the leading book on the subject. Please welcome my guest today, Richard Ingham. Perhaps you could tell me how you really got started playing the saxophone in the first place well uh, I guess I started on recorder when I was 7 and then clarinet
1: when I was 9 and then saxophone when I was 11 and I during my teenage years I concentrated on as far as my tuition was concerned clarinet Um, mainly classical and but I did play the saxophone from the age of eleven and I guess what you have to bear in mind is that at this time, this would be the nineteen sixties, there was no great tradition of classical saxophone in Britain as compared to for instance France or the USA. Um, but I maintained my saxophone playing and it was kind of dance bandy and and aspects of jazz and didn't actually start classical saxophone until my 20s. But um, my first teacher was um one, And he was actually a, a dance band leader, uh, a very good dance band leader. And the lessons with him were, to say the least, informal. And he taught me for the first few years. Um, but he, he never taught me about any boundaries between uh, genres of music. So we'd do some Mozart duet. so we'd do some Dance band stuff, or there's the 60s, so it's the latest pop stuff coming in. So to me, it was all music, and I kind of spent the rest of my life trying to encourage people to cross boundaries and dip their toes into different kinds of music. And it's only obviously later on I realised how privileged I was to have that original upbringing and inspiration. And then um, in my... 20s, I decided to concentrate more on the saxophone. Uh, this is after university, the University of York in England. Um, and I was very fortunate to uh, meet Eugene Russo, who was, this would be about 1980, I think, and he was doing a tour of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, promoting Yamaha saxophones. And somebody, I hadn't actually heard of him, because I had no kind of knowledge or, at that time, great interest in classical saxophone playing, so I thought it sounded sounded good, and and apparently he was amazing. And also, it it fell to me to do some duets with him, because he asked for a volunteer, and everybody else on the teaching team that I was working on at the time uh, uh, turned it down, and so I got to play some of the Glenn Smith wood music with Eugene. And it, it, was, uh, it was just wonderful to, to hear him play. And one of the most striking things was that he did the whole, sh- well, show, but it was a recital and talked about the saxophone. And he never mentioned Yamaha saxophones once. They were available the back and it was obvious <laughs> what he was playing. But the whole point was uh, basically like, if you think this is any good, you might want to check out the instruments. Uh, to this day, I've really appreciated that kind of very subtle uh, marketing. But, but a man of great integrity, I think. Uh, and then uh, I spoke to him a lot and, and he told me about his summer courses in um, Bloomington, Indiana and I managed to get some funding together to go to that year. And, um, so I spent a, just it a week in um uh, a masterclass course, meeting other people, mainly from North America, USA and Canada.
0: And uh, it was a, a real life changer. Um, it was amazing. So I, I was already studying uh, some aspects of classical saxophone, but that made me decide that that's really what I wanted to do. Do you think being overseas, particularly and being away from your home environment, was a part of that?
1: yes, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, uh, I wasn't kind of brainwashed into it. It was just such marvelous music. I kind of thought, yeah, I can see what this instrument is really doing now. And it was the first time I've been to North America. And that was, that was a huge thing for me. I mean, I was 25, 26 or something. Um, but because I'd always had a great interest in jazz, playing some and listening to a lot. Uh, of course all the people
0: I my heroes and the people I respected greatly were uh, mainly Americans so it was great just to visit my country for the first time and yeah I guess that that played a part in it yeah I mean you must have seen a tremendous difference in teaching styles uh, <laughs> going to America and, and spending some time with Rousseau I mean could you describe how that felt at the time
1: I think I learnt more from him than I've learned from anybody else in my teaching, which is what I try and put over to my students perhaps by example rather than by dictating Um, basically he's a very giving man and he seems to operate on this and I I think it's incredibly simple Um, and, and I'm still surprised that not everybody gets this but so the student comes in the room And plays for you. And and you need to appreciate that they've been working all week on on whatever they've been working. So you, you need to offer
2: some kind of praise and congratulations. And then you need to tell them, take it apart very gently without destroying them, and tell them what they need to work on. But the main thing is, as they leave
1: the saxophone, the teaching studio, they need to have in their heads, right, I'm going to go off and practice all week. And that's it. This really is as simple as that, and you can decorate it as much as you like. But, um, yeah, he was a great teaching example. I've seen some poor teaching examples as well, um, which obviously I'm not going to go into.
0: But do they, do they influence you as well, or do they form part of the, the approach that you take when you see something that doesn't quite gel with the way you look at things? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we, we uh, met at one of the uh, World Saxophone Congresses and the first one I went to uh, was in 1985 in, in Washington DC, University of Maryland, and there was a single format event because it was still quite young then, so everybody went to every, all the events as it were. And there was one master class uh, example session where four great teachers, each had thirty minutes to do a masterclass, and this was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And uh, Eugene Rousseau was one of them, and he was marvellous. He used the thirty minutes That's what he was told, thirty minutes. So he used it perfectly. The student played, and, and they discussed it. and uh, He made some suggestions and inspired the student. And. The, uh, there were others <laughs> there, uh, which uh, I won't mention any names, but one of them spent the first 10 minutes of the 30 minutes allotted saying how difficult it was to do anything in 30 minutes. So I thought that was hilarious, and then proceeded to do very little in the, in the next <laughs> the next 20 minutes. And, um, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Precisely that, and and if ever you wanted, uh, like you can read Prospecti and talk to people. If if you ever wanted a heads up on who to study with, you know, this was just a perfect couple of hours. And and somebody else, maybe it was another session, was just incredibly negative. Like they stopped the student after um,
0: uh, less than a bar, I think. They actually stopped them and said, no, 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 no. And, uh, you know, you know <laughs> that doesn't really... You. That, that's so disrespectful to the student who, who's there on this kind of world stage. So at least at least, <laughs> at least let them play two bars, you know. So it, And it just went online and I was incredibly negative. So, I, yes, sorry, that's a, a rambling thing, but I do learn a lot from teaching that I'm not impressed with, yes. In Australia, there has been perhaps a tradition of sugarcoating, teaching a little bit to encourage students, the the critical approach doesn't always work. But I see a change happening now where people are being able to disassociate criticism from how they feel about themselves. So they can have criticism on their music, but still leave feeling intact. And I, I guess having gone through a sort of rigorous French uh, system, at times, it seems brutal because they're so honest when they want to say something. But when I look back on that myself, I, I, although it was challenging to be confronted by that, I guess it got the point across and I made the changes they requested. Um, but I've seen plenty of people crumble under that approach. Is, in the UK, is it uh, more of a system of encouragement or, um, let's say, constructive criticism?
1: I think it's more encouragement. I don't hear too many stories of crumbling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'll roll back on that. I would, I would say that the UK was... The, the style throughout the UK would tend to be uh, more, more encouraging than
0: destructive. Would you say with your own teaching and your approach to teaching that you've taken elements of the teaching that you received yourself or have you come to form your own style let's say uh, both really I had the very the, the band leader Dennis Linefield to start with and just that whole thing of playing different kinds of music and not recognising any barriers and, and learning for instance you know how to swing uh, very early age rather than getting through lots of exams and then being introduced or attempted introduction to at
1: swing phrasing when you're 18, which is it's very difficult. Um, and actually his he had a very informal, so politely we would say unstructured style of teaching because he, he hadn't had any really formal training, uh, certainly not as a teacher. And he kind of sensibly handed me on to other people in my mid-teens. But I I do revert to that uh, informal approach because you can get lots of inspiration. Um, I think I call it education by stealth, just dropping things in for people which you know they're going to grab onto and they maybe not come across before. My baronet teacher uh, was uh, Georgina Debray. I used to go to London for lessons with her, and she was very, very strict very rigorous, and I am like, a huge amount of that. She was also a specialist in contemporary paronet music. She played a lot at Darmstadt, with uh, Stockhausen and all that. And uh, I, that was hugely influential on my, in my head. And uh, I, as I mentioned, Eugene I Actually, just that week with him inspired me for the rest of my life. And other people I worked with... Um, particularly, um, you you probably know, I spent a lot of time as a jazz educator, and um, quite a few years ago, I started to get interested in the Suzuki uh, method, because I was dealing with some jazz students who were exponents of their teachers, piano and violin, and I studied that a little well, went along and did workshops and observed a lot, and I thought it was quite remarkable. So I actually learned a lot from the Suzuki teaching method in uh, using
0: um, oral techniques and not being a slave to the page, not necessarily for just for beginners. Is that unusual in saxophone teaching and learning that you've seen? Is most of it done through reading in classical saxophone?
1: Um, I think yes. Although I don't claim any pioneering attitude for myself, but I guess I don't mean too many people. have uh, a similar kind of emphasis on non-literary teaching. Obviously, you, you're going to use literary teaching if, if you're going to get through it repertoire
2: by uh, music's not about paper and also I'm a, at least maybe more 70% of the world's music is, is, is not written we don't world's music traditions
0: now do you see a difference these days for the opportunities f- for young students compared to yourself when you were starting out um yes <laughs> well this is kind of
1: uh... It's a tricky one because when I was starting out when I was was studying at university I was principally a clarinetist and there were well-trodden paths for clarinet performers, but certainly with the saxophone was very, very different indeed. And I think the mid-1980s was the game changer in the UK and Um, This is where we come to examination boards, which are obviously not the real and end-all music, but they are incredibly useful, and the ones in the UK are very, very good, (coughs) particularly the huge associated board, which obviously operates a lot in Asia as well as the UK, and the Trinity examination system had got saxophone grades, in those the exams for basically school age people, elementary too. Intermediate and advanced. and uh, But that was a small operation and there weren't examination centres everywhere. And eventually the Associated Board uh, took on uh, classical saxophone exams in about 1984. So this was a huge step forward because it meant that when the kid at school said to the head of music, the music teacher, I've got a saxophone. Now, previously to that, the head would say, well, you just have fun with that and just do whatever you like, uh, but you can't take any formal exams in it, so you're not going to get anywhere, I and mean, there's very few places you can go and study it. And it was kind of an insular approach, but it was realistic. And then after, about 1984, then you could have grade exams, and then you, it was possible to get qualifications, and then more and more colleges started offering classical saxophone. So that, that was really the turning point. I mean, there's a classic case of the great saxophonist and clarinetist John Dankworth, kind of UK legend in jazz, a very fine classical player as well. He studied at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And basically, he had to hide his saxophone away and just not tell his teacher. And
2: then he just became a great international artist eventually. So I only tell you that to illustrate how times have changed. And then you find out by talking to people or going to Bloomington or, or, or whatever,
1: there, there's this huge, great tradition of classical performance and teaching. Uh, again, the, the strongest ones were originally France and, and the
0: USA. So Mule and Defeuille in France and uh, Larry Thiel, et cetera, in, in the USA, decades before it was recognized in Britain. That means that a tremendous amount of development has happened in quite a short time then because the number of, the sheer number of saxophonists coming out of the UK and, and new music and events, it's prodigious. Yeah, I agree with that and it, it's great. I used to worry about this, thinking,
1: well, there's all these people coming up and it's hard enough for those who are already, those who are already in the business to get work. How's this going to earn? How are they going to get the jobs? But it's very interesting that kind of work was created, you know, so there, 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 it seemed like the market expanded to cope with um, a high percentage of those performers coming out of college. And it's, it's just been a delight to see the development of that
0: and some very exciting stuff going on in some of the um, conservatoires And yeah, you're, uh, you're absolutely right. And... Um, It's interesting that you should tell an Australian point of view because, you know, in the UK you think, well, we do what we do. But if it is recognised that we're, you know, putting out a lot of uh, excellent young performances, that's very good to hear from an international perspective. There's an interesting parallel with the music exam system you have because uh, initially in Australia it was modelled on the same system and then... An Australian system developed out of that and before perhaps there was a large body of original saxophone repertoire uh, a lot of the music came from the UK syllabus and it appeared on the Australian syllabus and for for good 10 or 20 years the repertoire that was studied in Australia was out of the UK based on the exam boards uh, lists and because of that what happened then was uh, and sort of logical development. But then people started asking the question, well, wouldn't it be good to have some Australian composers on those lists? And it evolved from there. And and today the syllabus is quite different in that, although the structure remains quite the same, a lot of the repertoire now uh, is Australian, just like in the UK. You've got English composers represented, like yourself, uh, on the syllabus that, that kids can play. That's
1: a, that's a very good point, actually. I think maybe it's a similar thing then. In Australia, that when the UK saxophone scene really started moving, um, <clears throat> that there wasn't so much historical awareness, which in a way wasn't great because there was a lot to learn. But on the other hand, there was no historical baggage, so you didn't feel bound to immerse yourself in the French or the US tradition. And a lot of really great music came out. And obviously, you know, this is from the from the 1960s there was a pop revolution and uh, I guess led by the USA and the UK and so you know, kids growing up in the 1970s and 80s would have pop music as their background with, and that, that's where they would hear a saxophone so there was that kind of in there which does explain a little bit some of the UK saxophone sounds but the composers who were writing were um, obviously informed by that kind of background and their jazz background uh, every bit as much as the classical background. So I, I think that in part goes to explain some of the recent tradition of UK
0: saxophone music, if you can call it tradition. Tradition in a, in a new sense. <laughs> it's hard to describe because you have um, essentially each country has its own way of developing its, both its composition and its performance style, and it's heavily influenced by everywhere else. But each place does have something to offer that's quite unique. And I can't help think, you know, sometimes I ask myself, well, oh, I've been playing a lot of Australian music. I'd love to play some music from, and I pick a random country. And I can't think of a composer from that country and then I think, hang on, that country's larger than my country. They've got more, co- more composers than we do have over here. So to be able to share uh, these developments between countries, I think is really important. And I think perhaps the World Saxophone Congress has played an important part in that uh, sharing of, of development. And I, I can't help wonder what, <laughs> what drives someone like yourself to take on the organisation of a World Saxophone Congress. I mean, why did you do that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That remains unanswered. Um, Well, uh, I found the the one I went to in 1985 to be very... It's,
2: well, it's huge, hugely inspiring. I had so many uh, wonderful things. And I was playing at the time of the
1: Northern Saxophone Quartet. And actually, we got an invitation quite late on because the London Saxophone Quartet, uh, Paul Harvey's group, uh, Paul Harvey of the 1976 uh, Congress in London, uh, couldn't go at the last minute, so we were invited to go. And, and again, it was a real life-changer and met so many uh, interesting people. Uh, Of course Peter Clinch was there, so I was privileged to meet him, the great Australian um, saxophonist with with his quartet. And and then we just, I went to all of them, been to all of them since then as a quartet and as a soloist and as a conductor. And I've had my music played and I moved to Scotland to uh, five, which is just an hour north of Edinburgh um, about ten years ago, uh, working a lot in, I'd worked in St. Andrews for uh, a number of years, but commuting every month, and then I was living very near it, and I thought oh, this would make such a marvellous place for the World Saxon Congress with all that facilities. I, I should obviously say that there was a whole committee doing it, and I was merely the director. And as you can imagine, other people did most of the work.
0: I somehow doubt that, in a sense, because um, I know a committee, of course, of supportive people is essential. But the um, sometimes the the vision to draw those people together and to keep people motivated is um, a really crucial part of it. And um, one one of the I think one of the things that I enjoyed about the conference that you organized in St Andrews was it had a feeling of community was um, I i guess maybe it was because I knew you and I knew some other people and I had the UK background but um, I don't know there was the town itself it was small um, in that it was intimate you could walk very short distances and, and see people and I thought the whole the whole congress had that element to it where you you were never far from anything or anyone and you'd bump into people easily. And I, I really enjoyed yeah. that aspect. Well, thank you. It, yeah, it was, it, was, it was. Those connections that you form, sometimes by chance of bumping into people, uh, even on a recurring basis, I love. I, I really live for random connections with people. And uh, if an event can help to create those connections, I think it's a powerful thing.
1: Yes. Yeah, indeed. I just, I really value the international connections. You know, obviously going back to 1985. Um, so, I mean, someone like John Sanford and Marilyn Shrewd I meet every three years. It's just wonderful to see them every time. And of course, you know, you can talk to them every day, email or whatever, but that, the physical meeting thing is so important. And finally, I look forward to, I mean, the playing's one thing, but um, for me, it's more about listening and,
0: and finding out new stuff. And, and somebody you know will introduce to, you to somebody, or oh, you must be. Like- I think the one of the fascinating things with the World Saxophone Congress is each time it is organised, it's a completely new event. There's very little carryover from the previous event, and and largely it's due to the, the sort of overall concept of the director. And I really like that. I, I like that. There's not a con- continuity. It sort of resets, and when well, you change, you change the town, but the vision and the type of music and the musicians, all of that changes. And I think it's fascinating.
1: I'm uh, I'm glad there's a lot more jazz now because in the early ones there really wasn't much, and opposite the sax ones, just got a huge played a huge part of in jazz history and, and present day as well. And so on two fronts, I'm uh, really glad that a
0: there's a lot more jazz out front rather than underground, and also the experimental side, the contemporary side, and the standard repertoire has not been diluted in any way. Of course, that means there's, like, 5,000 shows on at once, but, you know, you just got to find your way through it. You know, the very first uh, Congress I went to was in 1992, and I was had no idea what to go and listen to, and I bumped into a guy, and he... I was just I was a young guy and he 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 just sat down with me and he went through the program and he said look if you don't know anyone these are the people you should go to listen to and do you know who that person was (laughs) it was Bill Street from Canada and to this day you know I still see him and I remind him of that that he was welcoming of uh, a green young saxophonist from Australia he 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 shared his time with me just as he would with anyone else. And I was always appreciative of that. And all of the things that I went to hear that he recommended were, were yeah. wonderful.
1: He's a great guy. Yes. Yes. You you've picked the right guy to talk
0: to. Again, a random meeting on the street, you know, getting off a train or something. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit about your approach to, to both teaching but also practicing. Do you think the way that you practice now when you've got something coming up is different to when you were learning as a student?
1: Yes, uh, it evolves all the time and uh, it changed quite a bit in the last couple of years, actually, which surprised me and pleased me that I can still do all that. Um, I had a big, which uh, kind of taken over my performing for the last two, or three years. So I gave the first UK performance of the saxophone version of the Boulez, Dialogue um, de l'Encore Double years ago and another two performances this year which is you know it's just months and months of practice and I just um, that kind of music I just love that kind of music I'm just having my head in it was fantastic but just uh, practice discipline was was, I had to review every aspect of what I was doing so for instance, his, his, uh, like even at I'm 64, even at my age, I suddenly started practicing standing up instead to sitting down, which may seem like a, a minor thing. And I thought, well "That's pretty good." If I could still do that, and I would think that was more energetic, but it, it, I found it uh, much more healthy. And I had to work out different warm-up routines to deal with kind of music, you know, the non-tonal. So tonal scales in interval or intervals, uh, which I find really, really interesting. And also, just based on my own experience and speaking to people and looking at research, just practicing for more frequent, shorter periods rather than just going on and on and on and then stopping for a while and then on and thinking because you'd flogged it for three hours that you've got something efficient done. Um, so you do quite, really quite short periods. Because as we now know, the brain can only concentrate for perhaps shorter than we think. So if you're gonna make it efficient, uh, it's gonna take, take you all day anyway, but practice for a short while, have a break, short while, have a break. So uh, because of that pace, actually, the, my approach to practicing has changed a lot, which I have. Tempted to pass on to my students, you know, and I think, well, it's taken me life just to learn this, but I'm, I'm telling you now just to save you 15 years. <laughs> and it's hard work for them because they, they just think, well, now I should practice for an hour, an hour and a half, or two hours, and well, you forget that, really. Um, I, I do say to them, you know, you'll be in the practice room corridor, and something will fall out of a practice room eight o'clock at night and say, oh, I've just done five hours solid. And the first thing you should say to them is something like, well, I can tell you, the last four hours were a waste of time, which is a bit nasty, but it's, uh, I mean, I think you have to drive this home that if you want to work efficiently, then you need to really think about it and not just get it.
0: Do you think efficiency can be taught, or is it an inefficient process you have to go through in order to learn?
1: answered the wrong question, that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly that. Because I, I can, you know, I, like you, I pass things on, I say, this works, and I know it works, because I've failed, and now I've found out how to succeed with that. Yeah, so I'm saving you time. But maybe you have to fail yourself first.
0: So I guess the, I guess the ultimate question then is, um, do we have to have those inefficiencies in order to achieve? Is it, is, is it just a process of learning music?
1: I think we probably do, yes, otherwise, maybe life's too easy. Um, Well, yeah, you know, I I, I like sport, I often use sporting analogies when I'm teaching, uh, you know, because it's live and stressful. Um, I think if your team is winning all the time and you're not used to losing, when you do lose, you're going to completely Crumble. So, a few losses on the way up, uh, tough New York, and, and um, I think you're better for that. So, the analogy will be you learn from the inefficiency, to think, oh, I did all that and actually it didn't work, but now I know that doesn't work, so I'm not going to waste my time up. Therefore, I'm more efficient. I think we're always striving. You know, my next period of practicing, I'll still be looking for more efficient ways of going about it.
0: Not, not in order to carry on quicker, just actually out of academic interest in efficiency. You've had a very, like, let's say, multi-pronged uh, career so far. Um, there's a few, quite a few things I want to ask you, but um, if I could touch on composition, because w- <laughs> you're well known as a saxophonist, but at the same time, for many years, you've been composing. And I'm very curious to to see how that's fit into your into your um, musical life because you've not just written for saxophone but also for other instruments and um, your music's published and um, it's widely played. I mean, h- how has that developed alongside your performing career? Um, well, I was kind of interested in it early on and then actually I
1: had a layoff of about uh, 20 years ago I didn't write anything up to the, I guess up to about two thousand late like 90s or something. And then I realised that I spent all that time listening. So I think that informed my writing and then I just got back into it. Um, it is, it's a huge part of my work and I do find that obviously when I'm coaching my own pieces, then I know, I know what's happening and what and the composer, I myself, Requires, but I do find it very helpful when interpreting other composers' work because you slot on in your composer's chip into your brain and think, well, what's happening there? And and so it works both ways actually, because it can help you um, interpret a piece uh, by having a bit of insight into what the composer might be doing, and also it inspires you in your own writing. You know, gives you extra ideas. Uh, whenever I'm doing I, I, I do this wind chamber music course at residential the, every summer, and uh, so a lot of coaching maybe wind quintet but strings and piano. and I just spend quite a lot of time, obviously coaching, but I'm just listening all the time and seeing what the composers are doing, you know, they solve problems and uh, instrumentation. I'm not sure if that answers your question, um, but yeah. I guess the two passions of life are performance and
2: writing, as in writing, music, and I'm currently, actually right now, just winding down quite a big chunk of my teaching operations in order to concentrate
1: more on the writing and, and playing, because I have a lot of works that are
2: kind of stacked up and I need, they need to be recorded, I need to get different versions out,
1: so, Need to give myself time to do that.
0: How important has it been to to have your works independently published and available to the world? Uh, Very important, actually. It's uh, it's a great thrill, and you know people contact me and say, "Oh, we're playing some of your music." Um, The the suite I wrote for soprano sax on an accordion from Pennant to penant has been performed a few times apart apart from by myself, and
1: it's actually in, there's a a full performance in in Perth, in Western Australia, a couple of years ago, David Geo did it, and and other people played it, and uh, my colleague Niels in in the Netherlands has has played some of the pieces, and it's a genuine thrill when somebody says, I want to play your music, I want to play a large amount of your music, perhaps there was a performance in Vancouver um, a little while ago. And then somebody contacted me just this week, wanted to buy some of the music. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that's really good. I just like to get the music out there, which then, to be honest, makes you think, because we're all pretty, well, I speak for myself, you know, insecure. And when somebody says they like the music, you say, oh, it's worth carrying on then, which, which sounds terrible, doesn't it? I mean, carrying on writing. <laughs> um so it just just when people play the music i'll buy it it's an extra inspiration to think well i'm not just sitting in the room writing and playing for my myself here yeah so it's it's really a great thrill that that so many people have uh played my music it's great
0: i like the the approach that when music is composed it should be played that just writing a piece isn't enough. Uh, composition doesn't exist until it's performed, and I I know plenty of composers who perhaps don't sign up to that because they've got plenty of music that isn't performed, and it's, it's perhaps the their, their joy is in writing the music, not in putting it out there. And it's um, I think uh, for a lot of composers they're quite insular, and the writing is the job putting the music out there, it's the performer's job and I love that collaboration between performer and composer and if you can get it right, if you can get the two people working together, you get this amazing uh, synergy between the two art forms and I think it's vital in order to find really the best pieces. And when a composer, performer can do both jobs, then I guess they're ticking that box. But on a wider level, if you can really sync with it plays and composes together I think that's amazing yeah I'd agree with you I think it's essential and and it's it's produced some of the greatest music really hasn't it if you look at the going back centuries the the clarinet tradition uh, Mozart and Anton Stadler and Brahms and Richard Neufeld um, dependent on each other
1: and, and you know the Mozart concerto would not come about had not myself, been around Stadler and the same with the Brahms, I'm sure. And that goes on today. And often, you know, people just meet at, at college and are inspired by by each other. And I think it, it's, it, it works both ways. Yeah, and, and, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's crucial. And, and more musical results come out of that I think, rather than abstraction. Although, you know, as you're learning your craft as a composer, that's not to say you shouldn't do exercises, which you know are never going to be played because you, you, you just need to learn the, the techniques. But as soon as you can, actually, well, I understand <laughs> it's pretty
0: self-evident, isn't it? You know, getting music played. Do you think your career has evolved um, under a master plan <laughs> or has it been a more of an organic process? Sequence of accidents. There's some stuff that I've gone for. This is what I tell people who, you know, you're always advising university students beyond
1: giving given career advice. The so things that I wanted to do which haven't arisen and then things that I never thought I'd be asked to do, which have. So that's, that's kind of my career, basically. I don't know if that doesn't answer you. Maybe it does, yeah. It's, it's it's there's certainly no master plan um, in evidence, and, and any such uh, plan is pretty much in pieces. I would say. I mean, you have ideas and you try for things, and then sometimes stuff comes off, you know, projects, and then uh, others, and then it doesn't, and then other surprising stuff comes in. Yeah. I, I certainly know what I want to do. And then I try and make that concrete. And then I guess, you know, at my age, I've learned quite a lot about the business. So, yeah, I, I make less mistakes. How about that?
0: <laughs> Is it okay to make mistakes? Yes, definitely. Well, not deliberately. <laughs> um, it's, how, do, how do you mean in... in in life or well everybody says we learn from our mistakes so therefore it must be a good thing and it's okay to make mistakes yeah yeah absolutely and then you need to learn from those mistakes if it's a good thing if you can identify that they are mistakes I think <laughs> if not you know you might be in a bit
1: of trouble with your career um yeah we, we just learn from that I wouldn't suggest people go out and deliberately make mistakes but by default learn from them so I think that the whole jazz education is a good case in point because um, you know phrases I no such thing as a wrong note and that kind of thing. I never ever, particularly with the early beginning improvisers, I'm never at all judgmental about, for instance, note choice uh, because it becomes hmm. obvious the better note so you're encouraging people say for instance if you're introducing uh, the improvising up using the blues scale then somebody plays a bum
0: note um, I, I, I don't say anything and it's kind of self-regulating because you can hear it Do you think there's um, a typical day that you have when you're teaching is there a sort of a routine to your lessons or is everything different for each student
2: well,
1: Teaching practice, which I enjoy very much, is at the University of Aberdeen. Quite uh, a lot of Saxon students there. Um, I have my own teaching philosophy, which, as we spoke about earlier, is based on the <laughs> simple axiom that I observed from Eugene Russo, who obviously didn't tell me that's what he did, but uh, you know, student comes in, plays, she, you show appreciation. Discuss it, give them work to, hopefully inspire them to, to practice. Um, it, 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 it's kind of each student is different. While I teach uh, classical saxophone and jazz saxophone, so obviously with specialists in the area, the lesson would be rather different, and it does vary from uh, the two semester system. Uh, it varies from the first semester to the second semester. And, I I must say, one of the reasons I enjoy working in Aberdeen is because the department basically lets me operate as I see fit, which is pretty great, and I think I'm experienced enough to know what I'm doing, so I could set my own um, uh, repertoire of uh, choices for for a student. just to get the point. In, in the first semester, what we do we concentrate on technical work, you know, scales, exercises, and a very wonderful Jean Marie ex- exercises, um, Volume Two, which um, none of my students go away with not doing. They're uh, just just so good. Um, and and then a certain amount of repertoire. And the second semester, we concentrate much more on repertoire development for the. Recital and also, um, this is not in the lesson, but I, it's absolutely crucial to have ensembles. So, I have quite a large saxophone ensemble and uh, two, two quartets, and I get other students involved in quartets as well. Um, but uh, each lesson is tailored to each individual person, basically. But I, I insist on uh, developing technique and developing repertoire. And there's that notion of just dropping something in that you think the student might find interesting, which would lead them on to something else. And if I can, i get all classical students to do some jazz and vice versa, which, as you know, often works uh, in quite an amazing way because they suddenly find weren't doing, this is the one that they actually want to do after all, so they switched to that, it's very rewarding when that
0: happens. But they've still got the skills of the first one, so it's a win-win. I've got on my shelf um, a reference book called The Cambridge Companion to the Saxophone, and this book has become essential, really, to anyone involved with saxophone, and I'm I'm curious to know how that came about, and how you came to be involved with the, the creation of that book. You very much. Um, it's, it's, it's something I'm very proud of. Um, I edited it and um, wrote uh, four of the chapters. Um, it, it was an amazing project,
1: it's in the mid 1990s And here is a very fine example. And obviously this book has meant a lot to me just doing it, but also what people tell me the, the what the impact of it has been. Um, Here's a, a final example. of I never saw this one coming. I just got uh, a phone call out of the blue saying, would I be, would I be interested in editing this volume? <laughs> so I, I thought about it for at least half a second before uh, agreeing to do it. Um, I, I, the background of it is that um, the editor of the Clarinet volume, Colin Lawson, is... Uh, a, a colleague of mine and it was as simple as this, when he was finishing his the commissioning editor, Penny Souster at Cambridge University Press said to him, we want to do a saxophone one um, who do you recommend? So he seemingly recommended me so they followed me up and, and so that was the start of it um, and then I thought oh, this is such a good project to, uh, to work on and um, obviously just itself but I had at that time you just get a sequence of students uh, coming from various colleges and universities and at some point they'd say oh for my studies I have to write a dissertation or, or some long essay on Saxon history or Saxon repertoire and there are no books in the library and I said yeah you dead right. there aren't any and, um, or uh, certainly Rephrase that. Sorry, there there were, uh, there have been saxophone books for a long time. Um, But if you go to the library and you want to do some research on the violin, then you'll have a shelf, you know, much longer than your arm, of very, very fine violin books. And then you look up saxophone, and there just aren't many, and not that many with appropriate history. So it was actually with that in mind, I tried to tailor as editor the book so that students at university conservatories, when they wanted information on the background of the, and the history of the development of the instrument and the uh, physical nature of the um, history of Adolf Sachs, and the repertoire up to the present day, then I hope that this project would give them something to go to. And it, it, it seems like it has, so that, that's been really a, a great thrill, so that was really a driving force behind it. And then just uh, contact with with so many international colleagues and and getting all the expertise in and then setting up the chapter, subject headings, um, subject material, and then put it all together. It took about three or four years, I think, uh, from the phone call to work was published, was published in 1999. So it's, it's, I obviously I learned a, a huge amount about our instrument in doing that project, but that, that was the original philosophy. Also I wanted um, the man or woman in the street with any kind of passing knowledge of music to be able to pick it up and read it, and I think it's very readable. That was too technical, but there's a lot of technical
0: stuff in there. Do you think there's a reason why there's a a bit of a shortage of textbook style uh, compilations available for saxophone? I mean, there's so much research done with doctoral students, it it just doesn't seem to make it to the print. Just
1: history, I think. I I can't account for it. It was, well, again, it just got the, it's a a 1840, that's a long time ago, but it's still a young instrument compared to the fiddle clarinet and and the flute, and um, maybe people are just more interested in playing than um, documenting, yeah. Um, and certainly in Britain there was, there was no history of it, and, and I, I tell you, if I hadn't had the experience of travelling to all the congresses, then, you know, I would not have had any kind of international perspective, which I did have, I think, which, which held the book a lot. And, and, oh, and I deliberately invited people from different um, saxophone cultures to write for me. So there was a bit of UK, there was a bit of France, and there was a bit of the USA. So uh, my dear late friend Tom Liley in the States did a marvellous job, and Claude along in Paris uh, did a great job as well. I did a completely different uh, subjects, but I thought it was great to have, have them both in, in the same book. And I took it right through, obviously, to jazz. I did the jazz history volume myself, uh, chapter myself, and then I did the pop one uh, in collaboration with John Halliwell. And I took it and um, I, I, I played the wind synthesizer for many years, so I turned the in it in in as well, because I knew that was an element for the, the future. Actually, one of the funniest things was, because it was going to be coming out in 1999, and living through the 90s, you "Oh, there's a new century coming up, and of course a lot of the references in the text were, use the expression, this century, referring to the 20th century even though it was only a few years away the 25th century was way in the future really so I had to be really careful that to one uh, almost my proudest ambition of Forsyth was to make sure all of those were, were reworded because I didn't want it to come out in February 1999 and be completely out of date by January 2000 because that, it would have been funny
2: but yeah, I managed to Save that, one off. that was interesting
0: one. do you think the books had an influence in China now since it was translated and it became a, a text available to Chinese saxophonists
1: I I hope so um, I can't really tell you um, I mean maybe you maybe you know um, it was uh, doing a, Working with the, the guy did the translation itself was very interesting. I mean, I'd like to think it, it, it's, it's had an influence. And I've enjoyed my visit in China, and they've got, you know, developing just a tremendous classical saxophone uh, tradition. So I would like to think that it's had some influence in terms of reference and historical perspective. Although it's not there are some elements are not in it but um, yeah I'd, I'd like to think so and, and, and actually just referring back to what you were saying about Australian music I remember giving a concert of in Chengdu some years ago and the far west of China and at the end of it uh, Lee my, my host said well Richard do you have any advice for all these I oh, really like 40 classical saxophone students sitting in front of it, all of whom had been, when they we were playing, playing uh, French music, essentially, because that's where the tradition had come from, the teachers that they think to France studying. So I made a real, trying to make a real strong point of not saying, don't play any of this French music, I said, like, carry on playing that, but you have to play Chinese music. You must have millions of great Chinese composers
0: get your friends to write music develop a whole new uh, Chinese repertoire of uh, saxophone music. Sorry, I've gone off a tangent there, but uh, that chimes exactly with what you're saying about Uh, Australian developments in saxophone repertoire. So, um, to your original question, I I don't know the impact that the Chinese translation has had, although I'm delighted it has been, it was translated. Now, I have a few let's say, more rapid-fire questions. So they're quick questions with a quick answer. So whatever comes to mind. If you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend your time? Um, uh, Warm-up, long notes, vibrato.
1: And I kind of really like the uh, mental study, um, technical warm-up by... Device for myself uh, when I'm preparing the bootlegs, so I kind of stick to that because that I know, gets me around the instrument. Uh, but that would be, oh, just so I've only got an hour 15, 15, 20 minutes or something like that. And then I, if it comes to tomorrow, I would assume that it was well under my fingers, so I just need to keep it. Yeah, if you're still struggling to make it work the day before, this it's really not good news. Um, I would go over certain passages. Yeah, I'd take some tricky passages, do a little bit of metronome work on those. And again, only an hour. um, I might... Yeah,
2: I'll give you an an alternative in in a second, but... (laughs) Uh, Just just bedding down those uh, tricky passages, not even necessarily taking them up to full speed. Um, And then a warm down, which I find this is quite useful, just
1: taking a whole section of music, which may be uh, challenging, but just playing it in long notes. So you're just playing those notes uh, with no pressure mental pressure to execute
2: rapid um, digital acrobatics, but just
1: just by playing those notes in sequence without the pressure of getting right all the time, I think that helps to bed it in. And another version of this would be let's say it's a five minute piece that you're so I'd do the warm up and then I would play the piece all the way through um, which obviously you would have prepared in previous days and
0: it's quite good if you could be practicing this at the time of day that you're going to be performing I do try and get my students to do that because I think that's quite important I think that helps if someone had a 10pm performance you'd encourage them to practice at 10pm the same yeah and, and take it for the two or three days running up to
1: it do a performance to themselves at 10pm absolutely essential likewise, (laughs) even worse, 9am so you you have to do this or else you're going to get caught out I mean look at the the, when they started doing all the TV work satellite TV stuff for the football and then they started putting the kickoff times all over the place instead of just 3pm I mean 7pm was kind of standard for many years but then they start putting it 5 pm and then 12 noon and, and that's a pretty unusual time to be
0: playing for Walmart so it, i'm absolutely certain that all those teams would be training and, and playing full out matches at that time just you're saying if you replicate the conditions of performance in your practice then it's more likely to go well for you
1: yes it is one less it's one less uncertainty one less variable that you're knocking out of the equation, because if you've done it twice, you know when you do a run of, say, a theatre thing, and you, eventually you, you, you get so used you, it, you just rock up, and then you just play it on it, and it's great. If, if you practice your piece, you do a run-through at 10pm, and then 10pm, and then you come to do it for real, somewhere in your head is a little voice saying, right, off we go again, as opposed to, my God, I'm playing at 10 o'clock at night.
0: Who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone and why?
1: I I have some heroes. Um, Eugene Russo uh, means such a lot to me because of his playing and is the person that he is. I have, I'm just going to duck the question and give you a couple of others. Um, John Ray Londex. Has uh, been a big influence on me. Just the, the
2: beauty and control in his playing, and his pedagogical
1: approach in his publications. If um, I'd Deborah Rickmeyer, just uh, just the sound that she produces is fantastic. Um, control of Vanson David and uh, Michael Brecker would have to be right up there. As a saxophone performer and creative genius, along with Charlie Parker and uh, young young Galbraith
2: and Johnny Hodges, well, it's, it's far too many. That's really, it's it's, it's,
1: it's crazy. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, somebody like yourself, who, the way you play and the the music you've written has been so hugely influential
0: and the fact that when I hear you watch you play you make it look so easy and then I go away to practice and I just can't do it You know, it's really annoying thank you now right before a performance um, I mean we're talking just a few minutes before a performance before you walk on stage What's uh, what, what do you do before you walk on stage that helps you play at your best um,
1: well prepare make sure you're not too tired before have a wee break, and yeah, that's it really. I, 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 I don't have a, a routine of yoga or anything. Um, I think you need to get your mind into the state where you should be playing. So you need to avoid unnecessary distractions, and you need to have. You need to obtain the right amount of food not do little, not too much that's always a, a tricky
2: one um, yeah but style it's, it's not a very very good answer I, and, and to be honest every you know you're playing
1: from different places sometimes in different countries every every approach is different so um, just give yourself time to prepare before
0: you go on. You probably won't believe this, but I got into a fight before going on stage one time. No, <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> no, because what, what you're describing of being in the zone and being focused yeah, yeah. and not being distracted and yeah, yeah. taking a moment, all of those things, I was attempting to do that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> but there was a guy there who was um, hassling, yeah. actually he was, wasn't hassling me directly, he was hassling um, somebody else and I couldn't help but get involved. And, yeah, it led to a bit of pushing and shoving. <laughs> so before I went on to do this performance, I had just wow. been involved in a little wow. tussle. I would say for sure that was not my ideal preparation for walking on stage.
1: Because <laughs> if you play better, you could replicate it at every gig. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, that is, I, I managed to avoid that. It's just you just never actually. This is why you get people to prepare at the right
2: time in the right situation and be used to the stage or whatever because you can't predict what's going to go wrong, like a fight, yeah. And um, yeah, actually, I'm just going to go by all those people I mentioned, and
1: you know, here we are. You're in Australia, and I'm in. Scotland and we're talking and it's, it's, it's a, it's a worldwide thing and it's, it's so uh, rewarding and fulfilling to, to play with people and, and you know i played with the jazz ensemble at the Strasbourg Congress and it's really mm-hmm. exciting just to swap stories and, and work with people from across the uh, globe. so
2: you were asking which saxophone players or personalities in the world that I most admire or influence by. I, given the worldwide nature of the, of the music, I, I think I would have to say, putting it on top of that list would be uh, my colleague
1: Claude Delong of CNSM Harris, just because of obviously his, his playing style. And um, I was privileged to spend a couple of days teaching there a couple of years ago and just the way he works with his students and a very inspirational teacher but also a fantastic ambassador and he takes the saxophone and um, performances and classes all over the world not only to give what he has to that culture but to learn what's in that culture and how that can be used on the saxophone, both for himself in France, but also
0: for whatever country that he's in. I think he's a, he's he's become a very important, very, very important figure over the last 20 years. With the benefit of hindsight, could you give your younger self a piece of advice that you would like to have heard?
1: Uh, just the efficiency. <laughs> Practicing. Also, maybe listen to older people a bit more. <laughs> um, but I have no regrets about all that. I think that was the way my career has ended, up playing in the writing. So I guess I wouldn't, wouldn't change any of that just just to make it more efficient. But I don't think my younger self would listen. You know, so if I have done a lot of adult residential courses in my time, and it's just wonderful the focus that uh, Amateur adults give, and they just because they
2: realize the opportunity they're getting. So, and it they never doze so off, and they, they just concentrate all the time and they want to work hard. And something inside your head says, if only you know, you could go and speak to, say, a, a class of 16 year olds,
1: maybe some of whom are not as focused as you'd like them to be in, in a general school, college situation. And if, you, if only could impart that so they're not wasting the time. Um, but I, that's also probably a waste of time because the 16-year-olds aren't in the lesson. Plus, the adult who's very focused is quite likely to have been an unfocused 16-year-old themselves at the time. So
0: they, maybe I was, they realized the opportunity. Yeah, just listening to efficiency. But I'll just repeat, I'm not sure my young self told Mm. by my old self So in your 64 years of uh, experience what are some of the changes you've seen in the saxophone world and what are some of the things that haven't changed that you thought might have changed?
1: Well it seems to be work for saxophone players so that's great um so yeah I thought that might have been a problem as I mentioned earlier um recognition and celebration of the classical saxophone tradition in the UK um, I, one interesting thing that you alluded to a little while ago was about all the scores of UK people who appear on the international stage and then come to the congresses. I remember for the first two or three that I went to, we were actually the only UK ensemble and I just thought if you know, only more of you guys at home would come and listen to this, you know, it would inform our saxophone culture in, in such a uh, deeper way and I guess with the, the upsurge of saxophone playing colleges that, 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 that did happen and that, as, as you say there's, there's a lot of them now so I think that's very good that there's more classical playing in the UK and there is visible and audible abroad. Um, just in general, the appreciation of one kind of music, one discipline music for the other. So I'm thinking of classical discipline, really admiring what's happening in jazz and appreciating it to quite a high level and vice versa. Um, jazz discipline, admiring what's happening in the classical discipline. And more and more, you know, I I write and play quite a lot of traditional music and and that's been uh, a thrill to incorporate saxophone in that as well. Maybe it's great to see, yeah, I'll put it like this, maybe it's great to see what's happening more and more is
2: that what my very first teacher showed me without showing me we we just did it over um, again. That's the kind of Suzuki, Suzuki technique,
1: which he didn't know anything about. That's a ramble, isn't it? <laughs> these these,
0: these <laughs> are the rapid fire questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, ask me another ask me another short one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very Hello. good. <laughs> now, where where can people find out more about what you do? Are you active on social media? Do you have a favourite website that you use? What do you like? I'm so active on social media. I'm not. No, I'm not at all active on social music, media
1: media uh, in any way. And uh, when all the um, <laughs> Facebook stuff started coming out, I was was pretty glad. No, um, I'm I'm not at all. I have a website, so you can, yeah, you can find out about me online at my website, which is Largo Music, L-A-R-G-O, as in really slow. L-A-R-G-O hyphen music.co.uk.
0: Now, finally, you've made an immense, incredible contribution to the saxophone. What do you see for you what would you like to do into the future? Oh, thank you for the kind
1: comment there. So, so I want to do a lot of writing over the next few years and uh, continue playing.
0: Sounds wonderful.
1: It's it's it all remains very exciting, Barry, which is great.
0: Richard, I'd like to thank you for taking the time today to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for this. It's always uh, thought provoking and can i say thank you thank you so much for um all the work that you do for the saxophone
0: good on you richard thank you just before you go a quick reminder to let you know that show notes any links and a full text transcript are also available it would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysax.com forward slash itunes you can subscribe for a new episode each week and thanks again for joining me and my guests on barry sax show